0: Every two years, Ligonier Ministries commissions a survey with Lifeway Research on what Americans believe about God, sin, salvation, heaven and hell, the church, and the Bible. Uh, They take what they call the theological temperature of the United States uh, so they can learn about the ever-shifting culture that we live in and to help equip the church uh, with insights for ministry. This graph shows the 2022 findings for one of the questions in the survey. statement number five, which is about the resurrection. Biblical accounts of the physical resurrection of Jesus are completely accurate. This event actually occurred. 47% of Americans strongly agree with that. 19% somewhat agree. So combined it would suggest that about two-thirds of Americans believe to one degree or another the biblical account of the resurrection. And those numbers surprise me because they make me wonder what percentage of those who say they believe in the resurrection have given ten minutes' worth of thought as to the implications of what they say they believe. Because... If you truly believe in the resurrection, if you truly believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, then everything changes. The resurrection is a radically life-changing, hope-instilling fact of history. And Paul gives us a short list of implications in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If the resurrection is true, then preaching is not in vain. Which means that you being here this morning, receiving the word preached, is also not in vain. And that gives me hope. If the resurrection is true, then your faith is not in vain and that should give you great hope. If the resurrection is true, then you are no longer in your sins. And that gives great comfort and great hope to all believers. If the resurrection is true, then Christians who have died have not ultimately perished, but live. And that gives you great comfort and hope as you think about your loved ones in Christ. And if the resurrection is true, and this is the main point of this morning's message, then you have a living hope. And not only in this life, but in the life to come. For those who have hope, only in this life are to be pitied, says Paul. But Christians have a living hope in this life and in the next. A genuine belief in the resurrection is a radically life-changing, hope-instilling reality. And that's the point of this message. Our text is 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at one verse. And I encourage you to have your Bibles open to the verse so you can see it in context. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the shelf in the back of the room. Please feel free to grab one. If you don't own a Bible, keep that one. We want you to have it, and we want you to be able to follow along. The immediate context of this verse is this this is a small slice of an ancient letter written by the Apostle Peter to Christians scattered throughout several Roman provinces. These provinces are in modern day Turkey. The area was known then, though, as Asia Minor. The Christians to whom Peter is writing are suffering because of their faith. They're being slandered, they're being maligned, and possibly even physically abused because of their faith. These Christians need strength and they need hope, and that's why the Apostle Peter is writing this letter to them. But here's the broader context only about 25 years before Peter penned this letter, he was with Jesus. He and his fellow disciples were following Jesus and learning from him. Peter was a first-hand witness as Jesus calmed the storm, as he gave sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, as he healed the cripple and the leper, and as he raised the dead and preached the good news, To the poor, no doubt, Peter and the others were filled with hope day by day as they witnessed King Jesus displaying His divine power and His authority. Truly, this man was the Christ, the Son of the living God. But that hope would soon be crushed. Not long before the Son of the living God was betrayed, arrested, condemned, and crucified, He looked at Peter and said to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Satan is going to shake you violently, Peter. You're going to fall, but you are not without hope because I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, did you catch that? And when you have turned again, Peter, you will fail, but not fully, not finally. You will turn back again, and when you do, strengthen your brothers. Don't you wonder if those words were in the back of Peter's mind as he sat down to pen this little letter? to strengthen the suffering brothers and sisters scattered all around Asia Minor. That conversation didn't end there. Peter didn't like what he was hearing. He said, Lord, I'm ready and willing to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And that's exactly how it happened. And when that third denial came out of Peter's mouth, immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Oh, and Peter remembered. And he went out and wept bitterly. As that Sunday approached, Peter must have been filled with fear and shame and hopelessness. But then... Mary Magdalene and Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women returned from the tomb with incredible, life-changing, hope-inspiring news. The tomb was empty, but there were angels there, and the angels asked, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Oh, it seemed like an idle tale, Luke says. But Peter rose and he ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Soon after that, we know that the risen Christ appeared to Peter and restored him and his hope. That's Peter, that's the author of this letter and this verse, the old former fisherman who's now writing words to strengthen and to give hope to suffering brothers and sisters so let's look at our text peter launches this portion of his letter with what i think is the main thing he gives glory to god sam storms calls this a doxological explosion blessed be the name of blessed be the god and father of our lord Jesus Christ. Peter's expressing the high calling of every created being, the ultimate end for which all things were created. Many of you know the first question to the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief of men? Chief of man, what is the chief end of man? I'm sorry. Answer man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The Puritans who wrote that got it from texts like 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In Romans 11.36, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter praises God and calls Him the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, those words were blasphemous for a Jew. And Peter knows that, and he unashamedly names Jesus as the Christ and as the Son of God, making Him equal with God and acknowledging His supremely exalted position as Lord. He praises God and puts Christ at the center of His praise and at the very center of this letter as well naming him four times in the first three verses. Of course, we know that we're to give glory to God in all things, right? So why is Peter, though, giving glory to God here? Continuing in verse 3. According to his great mercy. The reasons Peter give are all bundled up in this one thing. God is merciful Peter lays out two spiritual blessings in this verse, but God's mercy is the fountain from which they flow. God's mercy. If you want a definition, God's mercy is His goodness overflowing in love to those who are miserable. That's the best definition I know, and it comes from a 17th century Dutch theologian. Mercy is God's goodness overflowing in love to those who are miserable. That's precisely what these suffering brothers and sisters needed to hear. God is merciful. Not only does He see and hear their misery, but He loves them and His love overflows to them. Peter takes it further. Not only does God have mercy but Peter says his mercy is great. That is, it is abundant. God is rich in mercy. And it is great because it is infinite. Charles Spurgeon said his mercy is commensurate. That means it's proportional with all his other attributes. It is godlike mercy, infinite mercy. You must measure his Godhead before you shall compute his mercy. And out of this great mercy flows spiritual blessing. Peter mentions two. They're interrelated. One leads to the next. The first blessing that flows from this infinite fountain of God's great mercy is the gift of life. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again. Those seven words, He has caused to be born again, is a translation of a single word in the original. Other English translations read, have been born anew, has given new birth, gave new birth, or hath begotten again. The King James, of course. All of them get at the point. This is about being born again. It is a rebirth. It is given to us, And it is caused by the Father. The only other place in the New Testament where this word is used is later in the same chapter, verse 23, where Peter says, you have been born again. That's the word. Born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. The Father produces spiritual children through the Word. That means that new life is His initiative, and not ours. Jesus uses a different word with the same meaning. Remember his talk with Nicodemus? Nicodemus was the ruler, the Jewish ruler, who came to him at night and asked him some questions. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Clearly, Peter had the teaching of his Lord Jesus in mind when he wrote this letter. The idea of new birth is a sweeping concept. It involves a new identity, a new relationship with your Creator, a new relationship with other believers, a new heart with new desires, and the sure hope of happiness now and forever in His presence. And what Peter is saying is that This new birth is according to God's great mercy. It is God who causes you to be born again. You can no more take credit for it than you can take credit for your own birth. It was according to His mercy and not according to anything that you did. The English Baptist John Gill sums it up nicely in these words. Thanks are to be given to God for regenerating grace that is for grace that gives new birth. This is wholly owing to the free grace and rich mercy of God. It is denied to be of blood or of the will of men or of the will of will of the flesh, but of God, of His sovereign grace and favor, of His own will. He gave birth to us by the word of truth and we should be thankful for this mercy since without it, there can be no enjoyment of eternal life. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The second blessing flows from the, that flows from the fountain of God's great mercy is the gift of hope. The end of verse 3. He has caused us to be born again to or into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter tells us two things about this merciful gift of hope. He says it is living, and he says that it is through the resurrection. So first, what does he mean by a living hope? What he's doing is contrasting this hope with a dead hope, a hope based on things that are earthly, empty, futile, and fleeting. The world is constantly offering you hope, the hope of happiness and pleasure. If you just drink the latest superfood, cachava or whatever, or use this facial cleanser, or drive one of these trucks, you'll be fit, beautiful, and happy. But those pleasures are all inferior and they are fleeting. They cannot satisfy your soul, nor can they last. To put your hope in them is to have a dead hope. Many hopes in this world aren't wrong in and of themselves, but they become dead hopes when you put your trust in them. When you seek your satisfaction from them, some of you hope in money, a promotion or a better job with a better company. Some of you hope on retirement or on a husband or on children. It's what you live for, and some of you hope in Republicans and Democrats, and if you don't already know, that is earthly, empty, futile, and fleeting. John Calvin says that a living hope is a contrast between the hope fixed on the incorruptible kingdom of God and the fading, transient hope of man. Not only is a living hope in contrast to a dead hope, but a living hope is what keeps believers going. A living hope invigorates the believer. The Puritan Matthew Henry says the hope of eternal life in a true Christian is a hope that keeps him alive, quickens him, supports him, conducts him to heaven. Hope invigorates and spirits up the soul to action, to patience to fortitude, to perseverance to the end. The delusive hopes of the unregenerate, those are unbelievers, are vain and perishing. The hypocrite and his hope expire and both die together. He has there the words of Job in mind. Job 27, 8. For what is the hope of the godless? When God cuts him off, when God takes away his life, what is the hope of the godless? Now, here's the second thing Peter tells us about this hope. Not only is it living, but it is grounded in a living Christ. This is what reversed Peter's hopelessness. As one commentator put it, the resurrection of Jesus was a life-changing reality for Peter. When Jesus died on the cross, it was the end of of all of Peter's hopes. He knew only bitter sorrow for his denials. The dawn could not bring hope. The crowing of the rooster he heard only was the echo of his curses. It took a living Christ to give Peter a living hope. This hope is through the resurrection. That means it is a hope that depends upon, that arises from, or is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. A living hope looks to the future, but it is firmly anchored in the past. The Christians in Asia Minor need not be devastated by their suffering. Peter is telling them that they can look to the future with full confidence, with a living hope, and their hope was not a mere wish or a superstitious thing, It was firmly grounded in the life-changing, hope-instilling reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus triumphed over sin and death. Therefore, whatever happens to them in this world is trivial compared to the blessing of the future resurrection. That is a living hope grounded in a living Christ. It is the hope of martyrs who gladly submit to the fire rather than than deny their living Christ. It is the hope of every Christian. Let me close by addressing two groups in this room. There are Christians here, and there are those who are not. Some of you believe, and some of you don't. To the believer, I want to encourage you to think often about the implications for your life of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus because of the resurrection, your faith is not in vain. You have hope. Because of the resurrection, you are no longer in your sins. Take comfort in that truth. You have a solid hope. And because of the resurrection, you have hope, not in this life only, but in the life to come. That is a living hope grounded in a living Christ. That gives you an assurance and a confidence to face anything this world brings your way. The worst that can happen to you in this life is but a promotion to everlasting joy in the presence of the risen Christ in the next. Your hope, it has been said, is anchored in the past. Jesus rose. Your hope remains in the present. Jesus lives. And your hope is completed in the future because Jesus is coming again. And for all those blessings that flow from the fountain of God's great mercy, give Him glory. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ From the dead. Now, if you are among those who do not believe, if you're a skeptic, or if you're in the one third of Americans who disagree somewhat or strongly or just aren't sure if the resurrection is true, I urge you to look at the evidence. It's compelling. The resurrection of Jesus is the best attested event in ancient history. That's a fact. If you can't believe in the resurrection, you can't believe in any other event in ancient history. It is absurd to imagine that Peter and the other disciples made up this or somehow faked the resurrection. These men were willing to die for what they saw and what they believed, and there were hundreds of witnesses to it. I would argue that believing the resurrection was somehow faked would take a tremendous amount of faith. Years ago, a Christian apologist wrote an article from that angle. If I faked the resurrection, it was a backhanded way of reducing those kinds of arguments to absurdity. I'm happy to get you a copy of that or whatever else you need so that you can think through the evidence for the resurrection. Please come talk with me after this sermon. I urge you to do that because your life depends upon it. Your hope depends upon it. If the resurrection is true, everything changes from the reliability of the Bible to the reality of a creator, sin, and judgment. Everything changes. If the resurrection is not true, then there is no real hope. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. That should be your motto, because if there is no resurrection then Christ has not risen and there is no real hope. But there is hope and you can find it in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. There is hope because someone has defeated your greatest enemy, sin and death. The resurrection declared the victory of Jesus over death and demonstrated his power over sin. The victory itself occurred on the cross on Good Friday. But the resurrection on Sunday declared His victory to the world and gives you a rock-solid assurance of it and a living hope through it. This is how Paul speaks of it in his letter to the Romans. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. I think of those famous... Words in Dante's Inferno. Some of you, like me, were forced to read it in high school. These are the words inscribed over the gates of hell All hope abandon, ye who enter here. But this morning's message is that above the gates of heaven, which can be seen through the eyes of faith, through the rock solid reality of the resurrection are the words, all hope abounding, ye who enter here. But unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. New birth is according to God's great mercy. It is God who causes you to be born again, who gives you a new identity, a new relationship with Him, a new heart and new desires, and the sure hope of happiness now and forever in His presence. What stands between you and Him is your sin. You have rebelled against your Creator, but at the cross, Christ secured the salvation for sinners. He died the death that you deserved because of sin. He took your place, and then He proved His power over sin and death by His resurrection. You bring nothing to this table except your sin. You cannot earn God's great mercy. He saves from sin, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. That's new birth, by new birth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Trust in what Christ did on the cross. Call upon the name of the Lord in faith. He will save you. The resurrection is the proof of His power to do so. The resurrection is a radically life-changing, hope-instilling fact of history. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we are so grateful for the resurrection, for Your great mercy. And so, Father, we... We want to give you glory for, for that great mercy, the overflowing of your love to us miserable sinners. Father, we did nothing to deserve that mercy, and yet it overflows from you. And so Father, we want we want to see everyone embrace that mercy. So Father, I pray that you would work in people's hearts right now. Father, I pray that you would work in those who have not trusted you, who do not believe in the resurrection. Father, I pray that you would work in their heart right now. Father, I pray that they would not leave this morning until they have wrestled with these truths. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who with me believe in the resurrection and glory in the resurrection Father, I pray that you would help us to day by day live out the implications of the reality of that resurrection. Father, all praise to you and to your Son, Jesus. Amen.